Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It's my joy to be here this morning to bring you God's word. If you turn your Bibles to Philippians 3, that's going to be our passage this morning. If you're using the Pew Bibles, you can find that in page 981. But while you're turning there, let me pray one more time before we enter into God's word. O Lord, our God, be merciful to us. O Lord, Father of glory, I pray that you open up the the eyes of our heart that we may know the glories that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask this, Lord God, for this is a work that only you can do, that, Lord, you may remove the veil from our eyes, that we may behold the glory in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, do this work now. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. This morning, brothers, our our passage is going to be in Philippians 3, Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I feel the urgency that the Puritan Richard Baxter expressed that I am a a dying man preaching to dying men. Now I say that for this reason, not only because of the feelings in my heart, but because in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is feeling that urgency as well. He is in prison, contemplating the possibility of his own death. And when anyone is faced with their own mortality, 
when death draws near. The essential truths, those important truths, are the ones that rise to the top and they become your last truths. What would be the last thing you would want your loved ones to know? This is what I know I'd want them to know. And for Paul, to his beloved church, a church he planted, church in Philippi, and what he feels are his last words, he desires them to know this, to know the worth of Christ. Because it's one's knowing of this that is the ultimate difference between eternal life and eternal death. And so right now, the main competitor in your heart from fully knowing the worth of Christ is the love of your own worth that you have gained through your own efforts. You value them as great treasure or pearls when they are worthless to purchase the most valuable gain. And so what we'll see is Paul's strategy is to exhort his beloved church to consider or to think about the truth of their faith. And he lays bare the core truths from his own experience. And so for those of you who have been in the church for a while, I don't anticipate to say anything new to you or anything novel, nothing you've heard. But as Paul begins in verse 1 saying that he has no problem reteaching these things, so I feel no reservations myself to reteach you these things. Because in our weakness, we need to be reminded again and again of the gain that we have in Christ. And so my goal is this, and this will also be the main point, is for everyone to consider the worth of knowing Christ as incomparable, as far surpassing the worth of all your gain. Consider the worth of Christ, knowing, consider the worth of knowing Christ as far surpassing the worth of all your gain. So we're going to look at this in three parts. We have two exhortations, and then we have one question at the end. Two exhortations and one question. So the first exhortation, verses 1 through 6, is consider your gain as loss. Consider your gain as loss. And the second, consider your loss as gain. Consider your loss as gain. And then we're going to end in verses 9 through 11. So why is this gain a gain? So let's jump into the passage here in verse 2. So the first question to ask is in this exhortation, consider your gain as loss, is what is the gain? So Paul answers this in his attack of his opponents. So the occasion of our passage here is a defense against a heresy threatening the church. Uh, the opponents here are a group that you may have heard. Uh, some may call them uh, Judaizers. We see them come up in letters like Galatians, Colossians, or uh, 2 Corinthians. So moving forward, I'm just going to refer to them as, as the gospel opponents, the gospel opponents. So who were they? They were simply Jews who claimed to be Christians, but were rather false teachers. And their message was this, that it was necessary for the Gentiles to do the works required under the Mosaic law if they were to be counted as legitimate members of the new covenant community. So they were saying you need to be a Jew in order to be 
a Christian. And so when we hear this strong language that Paul is using here, it's not really to be degrading language, but really what it's, it's to show the irony of what they were. So he calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. Uh, dogs not to be so much an insult, but rather to show, it was a, it was a term for the Jews as someone who's outside, uh, a Gentile. So it had religious connotations, someone who's outside the covenant community. So for example, if you, if you think back to Mark 7, when Jesus calls a Gentile woman a dog, uh, her response shows that she didn't take that so much as, uh, as degrading her, but rather as a statement that she was not a Jew. And then evildoers are better uh, evil workers. Well, these gospel opponents, they lifted up their works, their good works. And what Paul's saying is, no, your works are actually evil. You are evil workers. Uh, and then mutilators of the flesh, uh, pointless circumcision. Circumcision was also a, a pagan practice. But what made the Jewish practice unique was that it was accompanied by uh, the covenant promises and the covenant message. And so all, all that Paul's doing here is really by that phrase that he ends there in the end. For we are the circumcision. And circumcision there meaning the true people of God. We are the true people of God. So, so the irony there, right, is they're lifting up their works, their circumcision, but he's saying, but they're not the circumcision. We are the circumcision. And so back to our question, so what is the gain? So the gain of these gospel opponents is their heritage and their works righteousness, or rather their, their law righteousness. And righteousness meaning you're in right standing, right standing with God. And it's achieved by the works of the law. So we, we see this in, uh, because this is the opposite of Paul's description of the true people of God. So you see there in verse 3, Paul says, who are the true people of God? It's we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. So worship in the Spirit of God. Uh, what that doesn't mean is like this inner experience, you turn off your mind, you're caught up in the emotions of worship. But rather, it means something different. It means those who belong to the age of the Spirit. It's, it's end times, the age of the new heavens and the new earth. And so that pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost, it was a, a one-time sign that those last days had arrived, and it will culminate in the final day when Christ returns. And so then we combine those last two phrases. What we have here, are, these are the people of God, whose hope is what we will be, and whose assurance is in what has been done to us. Who hope in what we will be, and whose assurance is what has been done to us. So glory in Christ means you're rejoicing in, in his work, in the work of Christ. And with the opposite, these gospel opponents, they hoped in what they were, and their assurance is what they had done. What was gained to them is what they were born into, and what they had done to earn this. So let me speak, speak here now to our young people here. Uh, being born into a Christian family, perhaps one of the highest blessings you can have is glorious. Be thankful for that. But no one is 
ever saved by just going to church. No one is saved by just going to church. I'm speaking of the action in and of itself. So if your confidence rests only in your obedience to your parents, you come to church, you've gained nothing. And so the irony of all of this is that the gospel opponents in their mind, if they could come up with, with their ideal person, like who is this person of their highest gain? Well, it would be Paul. Paul had the heritage and he had the accomplishments, which is why he says in verse 5 and 6, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This was Paul's gain. Paul's gain was everything he had done. So what is your gain? Your gain is everything that you have done. Everything. All that you have done. And so we have to ask a second question here in our exhortation. Why is this gain? Why is it a loss? So let me be clear on this point right now. Uh, what Paul is not doing, he's not diminishing his heritage, nor is he diminishing the goodness of the works. Uh, the Jews had a special heritage, and they were good works. So don't take away from this right now that obedience is bad or has no value. Obedience is always, is always good. So what makes this gain a loss? So when you think about it now, think of this gain as as a commodity. And he's saying that the gain of works under the law is this, is this commodity that you gain. But under the law it is useless if you try to purchase the highest gain. All this commodity of gain is an illegitimate currency to purchase eternal life. That exchange, it can't be made there. And so if you, in a game, in Monopoly, you gain all this wealth, all this commodity, and you go to a restaurant, and you try to purchase food with your Monopoly money, and you're going to be laughed at, right? In the same way, if on the final day, you show up before God, and what you bring is a list of your works, well, it's going to be much much worse than that. So that's why placing confidence in your gain, confidence in your works is loss because they cannot purchase eternal life. Why? Because of sin. So I'll say more on this when we get to verse 9, but let me say this here. Uh, any religion or false gospel that presents a, a works-based salvation. It's not an elevating of the law of God, but rather it's a, it's a degrading of it. The law is perfectly righteous because God is perfectly righteous. But if we try, and trying to work our way to God, what we're doing is bringing down the law to our level and conforming it to our imperfections, conforming it to our unrighteousness, and this process will always involve this, diminishing the severity of our own sin, diminishing it before the holy God. 
and we find comfort in our self-righteousness. This small gain that we have becomes a great gain, and we find that comfort in it because we have brought down the law to our own level. So when Moses descended the mountain, he brought the law to the people. The law, it proclaimed the righteousness of God. It showed his holiness. And it shined a light on the severity of the sin of mankind. And that your sin is not an issue of actions, not just floating here what you do, but sin is in the heart. And your works cannot change heart. And your works cannot purchase life. So if your works are your only gain and your confidence rests in them, then you must consider your gain a loss. So that brings us to our second exhortation. Consider your loss as gain. So what is the loss? Look at verse 7 there. The first part. But whatever I gain I had, I count it as loss. And this loss is letting go of all confidence in your works and your self-righteousness. So let me right now, let me describe to you the works of a believer. The works of a believer. Just listing some here. Active church member, baptized, regularly ties, prays every morning, wakes up early to read the Bible, memorizes scripture, a model citizen, a faithful employee, the works of a believer. Now, let me read to you the works of an unbeliever. Works of an unbeliever. Active church member, baptized regularly, baptized, regularly ties, prays every morning, wakes up early to read the Bible, memorizes scripture, a model citizen, a faithful employee. Everything I just listed there is good. But not one of those things on their own makes someone a Christian. What makes someone Christian? What is the gain? It's this, brothers and sisters. Knowing Christ. Knowing Christ. Look at verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The highest gain is Christ himself. To know his worth as incomparable. So where it says surpassing worth, that means its value is so much greater, it's incomparable. It's, it's otherly. You can't compare the works and the worth of Christ one to one. They're incomparable. So let me, let me ask this, parents. If I were to ask you to give me the worth of your car, you could return to me some, some monetary value there. I would ask you a worth, and you would give me a response to that. The parents are asking now, what is the worth of your child? What is the worth of your child? How would you respond to that? And now if I, now if I were to ask you, compare that worth to the car, how could you compare that? You would say those worths don't compare. Because the emotional bond of being in a relationship with a person who is precious, cannot be equated in dollar amounts for any gain. And that's the idea of, of knowing. It's not so much intellectual, but it's, it's acquainted with. Friendship, but deeper. Deep relationship. Intimacy. 
knowing Christ. And nothing compares to knowing Christ because nothing compares to Christ. His worth is incomparable. And this then, uh, this begs a question. If this is the highest gain, the highest gain is knowing Christ because Christ is the highest gain. How do we obtain it? How do we reach this gain? Do we earn this gain? Was that not the same question that the, the rich young ruler asked when he came before Jesus? What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Because the rich young ruler, he had much gain. But before the highest gain, all of that gain was worthless. And he was commanded to sell all that he had, but he couldn't. Why? Because he considered his profit too much gain to lose. So when Paul there says at the end of verse 8, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So our gain of works uh, not just, doesn't just fail to achieve eternal life, but confidence in them actively gets in the way of gaining Christ because they build strongholds of pride. And so the underlying exhortation under all of this is one word. It's humility. Because humility for the Christian, it's, it's one of the highest fruits, but it's those highest fruits that are the hardest to reach. Every day we need to be called back to humility and kill uh, the sin of pride that reigns in our hearts. And again, that's why Paul says in verse 1, he has no trouble reteaching these things. Because, brothers and sisters, again and again we must be called back to humility. We enter the Christian life. We enter it in humility. And we are sustained through humility. And so in order to gain Christ and know his worth as incomparable, you must abandon all that gives you pride. Let me read you this quote from from J.C. Ryle. He puts it this way. He must cast away all pride and high thoughts and conceit of his own goodness. He must be content to go to heaven as a poor sinner saved only by free grace and owing all to the merit and righteousness of another. He must be willing to give up all trust in his own morality, respectability, praying, Bible reading, church going, and sacrament giving, and to trust nothing, trust nothing but in Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, remember this, as we're thinking about humility, if humility is the path which we enter in the Christian life, it's also the path we walk, not just on ourse- with ourselves, but as we walk with one another. So the danger we face in considering our works as gain not just destroy ourselves, but destroy the body here at Franconia Baptist Church. If we hold so tightly to our works as our foundation, what will lead to competition with one another, jealousy, coveting, lack of mercy to a struggling brother or sister, 
Brothers and sisters, we must keep our hearts with all diligence because pride in our works will cause sin to reign and not Christ to reign in this church. So why do we humble ourselves? Look at the end of verse 8. We do it for the gain. Purpose in order so that I may gain Christ. What does it mean to gain Christ? Next phrase. And be found in him. So now what does this mean? We, we know the, the loss of confidence in our works and, and the gain is life in Christ. Now what does it mean to be found in Christ? And what I'm trying to get here is this final question. Why is this gain? Why is it this gain the gain? And so this third part, we're going to see Christ as the highest gain, why it's, it's worth losing all of our works, and where is this worth found? Where, what's the answer? In union with Christ, and in being united to him. And what that means is that all of his gain, all that he has gained, is now our gain. And so these last three verses here in, in Philippians uh, 3, 9 through 11. What we're going to see here is the path of the Christian life. But it's what Christ has achieved through his humility, suffering, and his glory. And that glory now comes to us in these three things. What we're going to see here, we're entering into the heart of, of Paul's theology here, the heart of this doctrine that makes us consider the worth of Christ as incomparable. And it's these three things that we'll look at. First, the righteousness of Christ. Second, the likeness of Christ. And third, the glory of Christ. The righteousness of Christ, the likeness of Christ, and the glory of Christ. So first thing there in verse 9, the righteousness of Christ. So Paul says, In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we have two righteousness here. Paul's own righteousness and God's own righteousness. One is based on the law, on works, but one is based upon faith. So if you look back in in verse 6, Paul said that he had, achieved, he had achieved blamelessness under the law, according to the law. He did not mean sinlessness, but he was faithful to do all that the law required. But again, sin does not reign in our actions. Sin reigns in our heart. So here's what he realized. That the life that the law promised, it was never to be found in the law itself. So Moses descended to reveal the law. But what it was pointing to is one who had come, who would descend and humble himself, not just to reveal the law, but to fulfill the law. Jesus came to fulfill righteousness, all the righteousness under the law, with his perfect life. And he was obedient, even to the point of death, death on the cross. And this was to fulfill the curse of the law because the curse of sin is death. 
So in his perfect life, in his perfect death, Jesus had the perfect righteousness. But in perfect resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead, now he is free to give it to those who are united to him. And he gives them his righteousness. And so how do we gain this? How do we gain this perfect, perfect righteousness of Christ? Through the faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends upon faith, through faith in Christ. This righteousness of God, when it says the righteousness of God, it means uh, different things in other places. But here, what that righteousness means It is the gift of righteousness that God gives. He he gives a righteousness. What is this righteousness? The very righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's on that basis alone, that righteousness alone, that you are justified, that you are declared righteousness, all on Jesus' righteousness, not a drop of your own righteousness. And it's by grace meaning that it's God's initiation. Not what you did to perform to receive it, but God freely giving this as a gift. And so when we say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, what we're really saying is that we're saved by Christ alone. He alone saves, and it's on his righteousness that we are saved. So brothers and sisters, hear me now. Don't forget this. Don't forget this great gain that you have at this very moment. You have the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness is now covering you. The brothers and sisters know this also, that this righteousness, this justification, it's not just in the past, not just a past declaration, but it's power now in the present and the promise of the future because that righteousness is only the beginning only beginning of our union with Christ. So that brings us to the second thing. Second thing we receive, verse 10, the likeness of Christ, the likeness of Christ. And so verse 10 has four phrases there, but the, the last three are all describing the first. And what's that first phrase? That I may know him. Again, bring us back to verse eight. That I may know him. What does it mean to know him? That is the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. So you experience the power of his resurrection. To know Christ, to know Christ is to experience the power of his resurrection. And what does this mean? This power of his resurrection? It means growing in the likeness of Christ. Because when Christ rose from the dead, He was glorified. And the promise is that all those who are justified will enter into this process of becoming like Christ, growing in holiness. And this is where the works come. Works are great. Works are powerful. But works are good because it's in Christ. And in faith in Christ, then we live out the works of faith. But how does this happen? How does this happen becoming like Christ. What does it mean to know Christ? And, and here, brothers and sisters, is the, is the paradox of the Christian life. What does it mean to know Christ? I've been exhorting you this whole time. 
What is the greatest gain? It's to know Christ. And I call you to know Christ, but what is to know Christ? To share in his sufferings. Share in his sufferings. So in this life, the highest gain is to suffer. What does that mean? I think if we think about Paul's story here, for example, we'll, we'll see what this means. Acts 7 through 9, it records this story of Paul's conversion. And it began in Acts 7 with the stoning of Stephen because of his faith in Christ. And what it tells is that Paul was a witness to that. He witnessed the whole story of Stephen, and he sees the final hour of Stephen ultimately in his death. And what Luke records there in Acts 7, he, he says this phrase at the very end, right before his death, Stephen in his final breath says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit. And those same words are the words that Jesus had said at his death. So I think perhaps this was the image ingrained in Paul's mind when he wrote this, becoming like him in his death. For Stephen, through suffering, through suffering, was made like Christ, the one who also suffered. And Christ's final work in Stephen was Stephen dying as Christ had died. He was becoming like Christ, sharing in his death. And that's what makes the suffering gain. And what's interesting also then in Paul's conversion, we hear these words said by Jesus about Paul. For I will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. How much he will suffer for the sake of my name. And I think it's these two phrases, the, the phrase and there, the image of Stephen suffering to the point of death. I think it's those that shaped, we read Paul's ministry and the letters that we have from Paul, this idea of Stephen's union with Christ, sharing his suffering ultimately to his death that shapes what we have here from Paul's theology. And so, what does he write at the, begin, at the beginning of this letter in Philippians 1? Brothers and sisters, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But some of you may be thinking right now, you know, this all sounds great, but it's not the death I fear, but it's, it's the living, because my current trial right now is what makes living feel like dying. Where is the gain in enduring? So if this is you, remember this. This happens through our union with Christ. He's not standing afar, putting us through these trials. No, but he is there with us in all of them. And he is our power to endure all these trials. So I don't know a thing about marriage, but I would guess that some of you, you would say that it was the trials that you shared together. It was through those trials that your, your bond with one another grew stronger and your knowledge of one another grew deeper. So when you share in the sufferings of Christ, it's him revealing more of himself to you. When you gain deeper knowledge 
of his power, of his love, of his mercy, and of his wisdom, and you die to your dependence on yourself, to your strength, and to your ability. So in sharing in his sufferings, you know him. So whatever worry or anxiety you have right now, if you know the worth of Christ that is surpassing all of your gain, then you have the peace of God, which far surpasses all understanding and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Christians, we're not the only ones that suffer, but Christians are the only ones whose suffering becomes gain because we gain the likeness of Christ. For the promise that we all know, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for our good. What's the ground of that? The purpose of it? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And that's why all things, even your suffering, all things are for your good. And this you share in the union of Christ, who is your gain. And it's only in becoming like Christ that we receive the final gain. In verse 11, the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ. So look at verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection of Christ is the pinnacle of revelation, of God's working in time and space. The resurrection is Jesus receiving his gain, his victory over sin and death, and he receives the name that is above every name. So when we gain Christ and we are found in him, when we know Christ, all of his gain, his gain becomes ours. And one day, brothers and sisters, as he now reigns and is exalted, so we will reign with him and we will be glorified. And we have the promise now, today, that sin and death will not be your final say. Sin and death will not hold you forever because as he rose to life, we also will rise as well on our final day. And we have the fullness of our gain. We will gain Christ. So, you see, brothers and sisters, though this is a, a dense passage, it's, it's very simple. There are two paths described here. The way of the humble or the way of the proud the way of the wise, the way of the fool. One rests in faith. One rests in works. Your gain is works, but they will be a loss if you place confidence in them because then you will lose life. You will lose Christ. But if you lose your confidence in your works, then by faith alone you will gain life because you will gain Christ. And then united to him, you receive his righteousness, his righteousness. And you will grow in his likeness 
It's in that process of growing in his likeness that your works play out that are pleasing to God because they're done in faith. And in the end, you'll receive the resurrection from the dead. You'll receive the glory of Christ and be found in him forever. So my friend, if you are here this morning, you're not a believer. I want you to hear this now. You came in this morning beaten down by sin and feel unworthy to be saved. Jesus, the friend of sinners, calls you. Believe in him. And by faith alone, your sins will be forgiven and you will gain all of him. But my friend, if you are here and you're satisfied with all that you have accomplished, you're satisfied with all you've accomplished on your own, feel no need, know this. Others may be impressed by you, but God has never been impressed by you. So I plead with you today, let go of comfort in what you have done. Humble yourself before Christ in faith. And only then will you gain Christ. So brothers and sisters, in Christ, this morning I urge you, rejoice. For to remind you of these things, it's no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard to you. Watch out, brothers and sisters, for the self-righteousness in your hearts and its fruits, and consider hope in your works as a loss, but rather considering the worth, consider the worth of knowing Christ as the incomparable gain, for in doing so, you will have all of him. You will have his righteousness, his likeness, and his glory. For I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Funerals are, are one of those occasions that, um, that bring all men, Christian or not, to face reality. So when the coffin is closed and the body is buried, we come face to face with the ultimate reality of our sin, that we chose the gain of death and lost the glory of life. So at the funeral, when we, what we realize is that the man or woman being eulogized, all their works, all their gain, well, they remain here. They remain here for the living to remember. But the Spirit's not joined by them but it goes before God with nothing. So what's, what's the question we always ask when we hear that someone has lost a loved one? What's that question we ask? Were they a believer? Were they a believer? We don't ask were they a good person. We don't ask what did they accomplish in life? Because in the final analysis, 
there is only one question that matters. Did you know Christ? Did you know him? Did you know him as the incomparable gain? So brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, you have gained all things. So let me end right now and read the parable of our Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Our glorious Father, have mercy on us now. We thank you for the gift we have of hearing your word and the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, the glorious and far-surpassing gain that we have in him. Lord God, I pray for all of us here that we exalt Christ in our hearts and know him and his worth. And on the final day, be found in him. We thank you for the hope that we have, Lord God, that all suffering works for our good. Because all things work to bring us to you. So help us, Lord God, this week grow in our knowledge of you by growing our delight of you. So we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.